0: history History. through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes, presented on the air and online by Provident Payments, proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler.
1: Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. What we've learned is that they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to take a little initiative, ask a few questions, and invest a little bit of time. Our goal is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice, to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in that process, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. Our guest today will soon turn 99 years old in La Mirada, California, where a view of snow atop the San Gabriel Mountains may bring back some memories of some other snow-covered peaks half a world away during World War II. Or perhaps the ones Howard Cook trained on in Colorado at what is now one of America's newest national monuments, the Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument in the Rockies. We'll hear about how Howard became one of the pioneering ski troopers of the 10th Mountain Division, helping to defeat the Axis forces in Italy in World War II, but let's begin like we usually do with the early years.
2: Well, I was born in Oakland, California, on 57th Street and Lowell Avenue. Where the Southern Pacific Railroad ran and the Key System local trains ran, I had the house right on the track, just a little north of the tracks. And so we started out there, and I was just a kid and uh, went to grammar school. And then I started going to junior high school and wound up in high school up at University High School, which was up on Grove Street and 57th street so that was how i got my education and then of course my dad and mother bought a house up north east of the university high school was two blocks down from our new house to the university high school and so i finished up at university high school at the time i became very interested in skiing. And I had rented some skis to go up to Donner Summit. And uh, one of my friends in high school, Kurt Dreyer's family, had joined Sierra Club. And they were very happy with the Sierra Club and enjoying it. So Kurt encouraged me to join Sierra Club. And I went over to San Francisco and joined the Sierra Club and was very happy to do that and wound up going up to the Claire to Pan Lodge up at Donner Summit, which was the Sierra Club Lodge up there. And it was right across from the University of California Lodge. They were right on the highway, just going up to Donner, almost to Donner Summit. And the little town, or it was nothing more than a couple of stores called Norden. And across from Norden was the Sugar Bowl. And of course, I went up first and wound up in the train station, and I went down onto the road and slept out in the snow. And that was my first time sleeping out in the snow. And so the next morning, I took my skis and put them on and went into Sugar Bowl and started skiing. I really enjoyed that, and uh, there was a mountain by the name of Mount Disney, and of course, You are aware of Disney. (laughs) Now Disney's got a lot of things all around the world. And the other mountain up there was Mount Lincoln. And they put chairlifts up both the Disney and Mount Lincoln. And so I started skiing there. There was a gentleman by the name of Wilhelm Klein. Bill Klein had come from the Arlberg in Austria and had the ski school at uh, Sugar Bowl. And so I got to know Bill Klein pretty well because he lived. He and his wife, Helen, were living at the Sierra Club. Bill Klein happened to be a very, very good skier, and I uh, loved watching him come down the mountain. And so he taught me to come down the mountain, but I'm not sure I looked as good as Bill Klein. But <laughs> he, he, was, he was so good. Anyway, Bill Klein and I were friends for years, oh, until Bill
1: Klein finally passed away. And how old were you that first time you went skiing?
2: I was about 13 or 14.
1: And who made those skis? I made my,
2: well, first, first, the ski I had to rent from an outfit down south of uh, Sears Roebuck in Oakland called Dempsey and Kelly. And it was two guys, Dempsey and Kelly, who started this sporting goods store. And so I got attracted to Dempsey and Kelly looking at skis and so I rented my skis from Dempsey and Kelly the first time and dad took me up to University Avenue at the foot of the University Avenue is the train station that Southern Pacific had and he put me on the train. I rode up to Norden and got out I didn't know what to do other than go down to the floor below the station and found a place, but it was in the snow, and I, my
1: first night out sleeping in the snow. But Little did you know how many nights you'd sleep in the snow in uh, Italy later on, huh? Later on. I wound up being in the snow lot. Anyway. And you ended up making a pair of your own skis in wood shop in
2: high school? At Woodshop, and Mr. Reed was a shop instructor. He was a great guy. He knew how to steam his skis, steam them. And you see, the tips of the skis have to be steamed up so you can get through the snow, right? But you also know that the ski has to be steamed up where your foot goes because there's about a 5-8 or 3 quarter inch steam steamed bend in the ski and as the ski is about six foot nine or seven foot ski and it's where your foot goes is pretty much in the middle. It's a little back in the middle. In order to make the ski work properly, you have to put a bend in the ski so that where the foot is actually is about a five-eighths, a three-quarter inch. Above, and when you put your foot on it, then with your weight, the ski is straight then. And so then you can turn the ski by lifting it to left side or the right side, depending on which way you want to turn. So we had to do that. We had to learn first how to make the ski. And (laughs) and I didn't like to have to pay for the skis, so I... Made them in, in high school, and Mr. Reed sure helped me. He was a wonderful guy. First, I didn't put any steel edges on them. I found out that when I after I took them up the first time, and then the edges started wearing down where they're round, and they don't bite into the snow very well anymore. So I had to put steel edges on them. So I went back to Mr. Reed, and he showed me how to use a router to make a place for the steel edges of the ski, and I did that with his new skis, so I was ready to go, and I used those skis for quite a long time. Then I went up to a Lodge at a Sierra Club and met this Jorgy Jorgensen, who was managing it. Everybody had to have a job at the Sierra Club, and so I became a pot walloper, and a pot walloper is a guy who cleans all the great big pots they make the food in. Like the mush pot got pretty burned sometimes, and it was pretty tough to clean up inside, so I was I was doing that. And there were a lot of jobs up there that you could have. Of course, this is during the Depression, but I didn't know about much about the Depression because my father was a very successful candy salesman, so he was doing fine, and we always had a meal on the table, so I did fine. I don't know if you ever knew anything about the Unobar, but the Unobar is a beautiful candy bar that was manufactured by the Cardinette Candy Company. It was covered with chocolate. The center was very beautiful, melt in your mouth type of center. And Dad sold Unos and Baffle Bars and Night Editors was a coconut bar they made. Pepper Tree was a mint type of bar. They were selling candy in the Depression and doing very well.
1: And do you remember in those teenage years before the war started for America, do you remember having some kind of dream or ambition of, hey, when I grow up, this is what I'm going to do or who I'm going to be?
2: Well... I really had a fine education, and I thought I would w- wanted to be a lawyer. And so, of course, University of California was on Telegraph Avenue, was the southern entrance to the University of California property. I lived uh, just below Telegraph Avenue, and I could actually have walked up there, but it was a few miles, but I wound up buying a little old Chevrolet car when I was about sixteen or so and had a thirty five Chev and I drove it all around and it was a good car and my dad helped me with showing me how to drive and got my license and at sixteen I
1: think. Well and you were still sixteen when the world changed a little bit, December 7th, 1941. And, and I think almost every World War II vet I've met over the years has had some kind of memory of that day. Do you remember what happened that day and what you were doing, how you found out?
2: Well, I had a girlfriend in East Oakland, and I had a date with her. And when I got out there, I found out that the Japanese had dropped bombs on. And so I knew, you know, I, I was quite aware that I might be going into the service, but I was only 16.
1: And I've heard some stories about the Bay Area in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, that people had to black out their windows and were worried about the Japanese coming to the Bay. Exactly.
2: Plus, uh, the Japanese submarines came over and fired on some of the little towns to the north of us, in Sonoma County and up in Mendocino County. They might have fired on some of the little towns in there but it wasn't like the attack on pearl harbor there were no plans so we knew we were in a war and i knew i was going to go someplace and we had a fellow by the name of charles minot dole he didn't like the name minot so too much so it was known as minnie dole minnie dole started the ski patrol and the national ski patrol was people that who volunteered to serve on ski runs to pick up people who were hurt and damaged and bring them back where they could take care of them if they had broken anything or they had strained anything on their legs we could take care of them so this was very important and this was all over the united states so skiing was starting to be quite a sport and so i got interested in the skiing and my dad was a guy that was. Really loved outdoors, and he was really eager to help me get into the skiing business. So he was tickled to death to take me up to University Avenue, put me on the train, and go up to Donner Summit and ski. He didn't know how to ski, but he was happy that I was learning how to ski. Pretty soon I met some of the adult people there at the lodge, and they offered to take me up there every weekend, and I started and uh, Georgie said, do you want to run our rope tow up in the Signal Hill? And rope tow up in Signal Hill was really good. And it was uh, a good mountain. And so uh, I said, sure. So Georgie put me on Signal Hill. I found different people who would give me a ride up to Sierra Club Lodge, which was called T- Pan. I just got started with Sierra Club. And Kurt Dreyer told me to do that. <laughs> and It uh, worked out beautifully. And I have been a member of the Sierra Club for a long, long time now. And I'm 98 years old.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's probably not too many people, if any, that have been a member longer than you.
2: <laughs> Possibly. I may be the oldest member of the Sierra Club. I'm not sure. But the Sierra Club people were very nice. And some of them had actually come from Europe and had skied. And so uh, skiing became quite popular in California and other states, Utah, Colorado, Idaho, beautiful places to ski.
1: And you mentioned Minnie Dole and the ski patrol, but he would be instrumental, I believe, in the the formation and training of the 10th Mountain Division, right?
2: Absolutely. Minnie Dole went down to Washington. He was very interested in the fact that we had to have some kind of a mountain division because the American army knew that the Germans had nine mountain divisions. And so if we were going to be in a war with Germany, which it looked like we probably would be because Britain and France were our allies, Italy and Germany were allied in the Axis, what they called the Axis, So we knew we might have a war with them. And when Minnie Dole went down to see George Catlett Marshall, who was in charge of the Army, and suggested that we should have a mountain division, I think George Catlett Marshall thought it was a really good idea because he knew that Germany had nine mountain divisions. (laughs) So we started the division. They first didn't have anything close to anything the was a mountain that would be a good place to ski other than up in Olympia and Tacoma area on the Puget Sound just below Mount Rainier. And Mount Rainier is about 14,300 elevation and the only place where you had a camp that was any good was at Fort Lewis and so they started the 87th Mountain Re- Infantry Regiment at Uh, Fort Lewis, they could truck them up to a place called Paradise in uh, Mount Rainier National Park. And Paradise was the place where they started skiing. And of course, when they went up there, the snow was so high and (laughs) great that they had to climb in the second floor, up to the second floor to get in. (laughs) So anyway, that was the 87th started up there. But because Fort Lewis could only handle a regiment, not a full division. They looked for a place in the Rocky Mountains that would be satisfactory for a division, a full division. So they found in Pando, Colorado, which is a little town about 12 to 15 miles north of Leadville, Colorado. They built from April to November. They went up there and built a Barracks for 14,000 men, so what you had could carry a division. So that's what I volunteered to go into because they were advertising for anybody that liked to ski to join the mountain troops. That's what I wanted to do. I volunteered as soon as I could to go into the what they called the ski troops. It was primarily called the ski troops because they didn't have three regiments yet. They started with 87s. The next one they installed was 86. So when I went in, I went into the 86th 2nd Battalion Headquarters. That's where I was established. And I had to walk up about three miles with this bunch of barracks bag full of clothes that I'd received in Monterey when I went in. And they told me, you're not going to use those clothes going to use our clothes up here, so <laughs> I had to change my own clothes, so it was an interesting experience for me, just getting on the train and coming up to Camp Hale, and uh, getting out of Pando, and, and there's nothing at Pando, see, there's nothing but a train station there, and nobody's there hardly. Down below me were all these white barracks buildings, and there was enough for 14,000 guys. Everybody from all over the United States was coming to Camp Hale, if they volunteered, of course. Wonderful group of men who loved the outdoors. We had a lot of outdoors up there. A lot of times, we never got to go back to the barracks. We had to stay outside in the snow (laughs) and learn how to live in the snow. You really learn how to exist in a situation like that when it's winter and cold My ears are still frozen from Mitchell Creek, which was above where Cooper Hill was. My ears froze there in my sleeping bag. They still don't work really good. (laughs) The ears themselves outside your head froze. I'm still cogent at 98, and I'm happy for that. I'm just a very happy guy.
1: This happy guy, Howard Cook, will soon turn 99. But when we come back, we'll take you back to his teenage years, training at Camp Hale and then heading to Italy with the 10th Mountain Division. You can find photos and a short video with Howard at hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes Facebook page. And we'll be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I gotta tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. What I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328.
0: Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty.
1: Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our visit today with one of our last living links to a truly groundbreaking group that holds a special piece of World War II history the 10th Mountain Division. Howard Cook volunteered to be one of America's first ski troopers, and when we left off, he had made it to Camp Hale in Colorado. And what can you tell us about the training you had there at Camp Hale? What were some of the things they were teaching you guys how to do?
2: Well, they were teaching us, number one, how to march, and also how to ski in snow and how to live on icy and snow conditions. And so we're learning a lot about that. My first night, I want to tell you about the first night I got there, delivered to Pando, Colorado. I walked three and a half or four miles up to... Second Battalion Headquarters, carrying all these the stuff I got in Monterey, finding myself a bunk in the Second Degree Headquarters Barracks. We had dinner, and then Sergeant Derosier. This man was from New Hampshire, and he'd been in the snow. So Sergeant Derosier took us out to the combat training area. They had explosives inside the area, and they had barbed wire. And you had to learn how to crawl on the ground and get under the barbed wire and feign, you, you were going to attack the soldiers on the other side. And so that's what we did the first night. And I said, boy, "What? boy, I've had quite a day. You know, I just got <laughs> up there in the train and I'm crawling under the barbed wire and that's what Sergeant DeRozier put me through. So then what happened is that We kept learning how to use skis and climb with ropes and pitons, and at rather excessive heights, which I had already done. And after Kurt told me to get the Sierra Club, I started going to Yosemite Valley and climbing some of the walls there. And for example, uh, Cathedral Spire and a couple of other Washington uh, columns, and some of those, and uh, around Yosemite falls and so I had some experience climbing rocks and I never did climb like more recently somebody finally climbed El Capitan as you enter Yosemite Valley it's the cliff on the north side of the valley and it's a tremendous tremendous climb and it's uh, now been done by a few people and I never got up it (laughs) I never got up it (laughs)
1: So they have you up there in the Rockies in extreme conditions, skiing, rock climbing, learning how to survive in in tough conditions. So fierce temperatures, 40 below was one of the worst. And they must have done some weapons training with you too.
2: All weapons training. We had all kinds of weapons to learn. Of course, I was in rifle platoons, so I had a M1, which was called a Garand rifle, and it was a fairly new rifle. We were just getting in, and we, before they had Springfield rifles, but now we have the Garand Magnificent rifle, and it would fire eight rounds in a clip, thirty uh, caliber
1: bullet. And how did you feel about the idea of going overseas? Well,
2: I at that time, see, one of the things that we were at Camp Hale, and then in July they told us we were going to Camp Swift, and that was down in Texas. And there were all kinds of rumors that were going to break us up, we we're not going to go, and we hadn't gotten into combat yet. And so we were somewhat concerned because we were training to go into combat and nothing was happening. So the big problem was that we had to get somewhere. So when we get to Camp Swift, we're down in Texas, and now we're walking 25-mile hikes in 110-degree temperatures. But we were all in good good shape. We were outstanding shape because we'd been up there at 9,400 feet, climbing 12,000, 13,000 mountains. So we were in good shape. So we had no problems. We had no problems in Texas. And then all of a sudden they said, we want you to take this test. And they said, you're going to Officer's Candidate School in Fort Benning, Georgia. Got to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I said, here's the Benning School for Boys. That's what they told the Benning School for Boys. So it was supposed to be very tough training there, but it was a piece of cake for a guy that was trained up in Colorado. i tell you. Several of us from Colorado went to the Class 359 of Officer's Candidate School, and we were in good shape, you know. We, Sergeant DeRozier went with us, but he didn't—he didn't make it through. Several of us graduated there, and we wound up with second lieutenant commissions. And so now we were officers.
1: What was your reward for earning that commission? What did they do with you next?
2: They sent me back to Camp Swift. I was there for a little while, and then they said, "You're going on a train to." Norfolk, Virginia. And then they didn't tell me what's going to happen in Norfolk, Virginia, but I got on a beautiful steamship. They took the 85th and the 87th over and the 86th had already gone over. So I get to Bay of Napoli. And the Bay of Napoli was filled with sunken ships. You could see nothing but sunken ships in the Bay of Napoli. And they put me on a train, sent me up to Leghorn. They called it Leghorn on the Tyrrhenian Sea in Italy. Livorno is the Italian name for Leghorn. Livorno. So we get up there, and then they assign me as a replacement, C Company of the 86th Regiment, which was located in Pisa. So I went up there and followed by the name of Bill Sean, who came back later as our company commander. Bill Sean was wounded in combat up on the Apennine Mountains when we were patrolling around Mount Belvedere and Gorgolesco. So Bill Sean was the weapons platoon leader, but he got wounded, so he was back in the hospital. So they put me in as the weapons platoon leader. So I took Bill Sean's place. And Bill Sean became a great friend when he returned. We became very dear friends for several years. And uh, Bill Sean was a good guy, but he's also passed since.
1: You told us about some of your training and 40 below zero and up at 14,000 feet and skiing and climbing and all that. But what about your first taste of combat? And were you really prepared for what you were going to be dealing with there in Italy?
2: Well, My first recollection that I knew that I was in combat was a bullet flew right by my right ear, and I heard that, baby, (laughs) and I knew I was in trouble. And that was when the Germans attacked us up on River Ridge when they found out we had gotten on River Ridge because they didn't know that we'd gotten up there.
1: So I want to talk about this. This is February of 1945. So you've just turned 20 years old, and this is Riva Ridge on Mount Belvedere, which they had tried to take three times and failed, right?
2: That's correct. They tried to take it three times and failed. And one of the reasons was that the Germans had artillery over on Riva. They could fire on Mount Belvedere very nicely. You could see everything from uh, Riva Ridge on Mount Belvedere, and so... It was a great spot to have an artillery outfit. And every time they tried to take River Ridge before we got there, they'd be driven off by this artillery fire. So when uh, our division commander was Major General George P. Hayes and George Price Hayes had been in the artillery in World War One, mm. And he would won a medal of honor in World War One. So he was a pretty good soldier. And um, he knew how to handle that, Reaver Ridge. The first thing they did was, you're going to take Reaver Ridge before you take Mount Belvedere. So sure enough, we, 1st Battalion of 86 Mountain Infantry. At 730, we went over there and started to climb that sucker. <laughs> it was very steep. Reaver Ridge was very steep, and we climbed it. But fortunately, prior to that, there had been a little warm spell, and a lot of the f- snow and stuff that had been on the mountain was melted, too. had melted off, and so we had a little easier climb than we would have had if we had that ice and snow b- to go up. Anyway, we got up the mountain without any problem, just climbing. We did have a lot of fixed ropes up the mountain to get over the steep stuff.
1: Yeah, and that's what the picture I want you to give people, because they're imagining this in their mind's eye, and a lot of people, if they go on a hike or something, they're on a trail with switchbacks, and it's pretty easy to navigate. Doesn't sound like that's what you guys were doing. This was a pretty sheer... Very very steep,
2: precipitous slope going up, and uh, all the way up, see, we had a climbing team at each company, and the climbing team would set up fixed ropes for us to climb up over the very steep parts of the place and so all the way up we had rope and we had ability to get up over the very steep areas so we were doing fine and we got up there to almost to the top and what a wonderful thing happened all of a sudden a fog came up and blocked our view of the top and blocked the view of the Germans so that we couldn't see each other. That fog was a blessing for us because we got up on the top of the mountain and started to dig in our positions on the top of the mountain on the other side, on the north side. So we were looking down on German territory.
1: Well, and you talk about that fog, so I want to make sure I understand because I'm imagining you on some of these steep. Sections where you're climbing a rope, and if you're climbing a rope on the side of the mountain and somebody starts shooting at you, it's kind of hard to get out of the way. It would be tough. Yeah. But they can't see you while you're doing that because of the fog?
2: Uh, the fog. So they couldn't see us coming up because of the fog, because the fog came up when we got up to the top of the mountain, and it was gr- great because it permitted us to get on top of the mountain and find places to dig in on the north side of the mountain so we could have positions up there. And so the Germans weren't really up at the top of the mountain. They were there, though, and uh, we found them. It was very interesting. When the the bullet went by my right ear, we started fighting and went over and found a German dugout with uh, probably 70 soldiers in it, 70 prisoners, I think, we took. We opened up the dugout, and these guys had been asleep. They'd been asleep because they didn't think anybody could get up that south side of River Ridge. They didn't think anybody could climb up that. So we had it pretty well. In other words, we didn't have really any war until we climbed up to the top, dug our positions in. Then they found out we were up there, and then they came up, and they were firing at us, and Trying to drive us off the mountain. But we did find this dugout after we got dug in, and we went out and found, out, found him in there. Said, you know, heraus. Kommen Sie a, heraus mit sie heraus. And that means you know, your hands up. I knew enough German to say that to him. heraus mit Hand heraus, So we got him out. And they all came out, and he took them prisoner. We sent them down on the south side of the mountain where we came up, and then uh, the Germans found out that we were up there, and then they sent as many guys as they could get, get a hold of up that mountain to get us off. And that was the 19th of February, and they wanted us off of that mountain. And they attacked us constantly until, as a matter of fact, one of the fine guys, our executive officer of C. Company, was on Ridge X, and he was killed. Another fine, enlisted man, Ferdie Lebrecht, he was killed, and he was a wonderful soldier. And uh, anyway, it was a difficult time on River Ridge, but uh, I didn't get wounded.
1: Well, and I'm sure you came pretty close, and, and you mentioned a couple guys you knew who didn't make it out of there, and what I read were 21 members of your unit were killed in that battle, 52 more wounded, 3 taken prisoner. So this was pretty intense, pretty dangerous, and there was another little story i read where it said you guys are up there the fog had protected you seems to me that might be a little nerve-wracking too because if they can't see you you don't know where they are either but then there i read something and there was a quote from you where you guys were looking down from the ridge you saw the germans and you waved to them and they thought you guys were german telling them to come closer your quote was if we were more combat wise we would have let them get in really close and that maybe you started firing at them too early
2: yes this was the problem We saw them. We were going to let them come in closer so we could demolish them. (laughs) But we also had the guys in our company who were cooks. And they hadn't had much training, really, with uh, rifles and stuff like that. And so we got in the firefight. They started firing at them when they saw them, see. And that drove them off. They knew we were there. (laughs) Then they knew... We were there, and so that kind of broke up our plan to suck them right in and get them where we could get them all,
1: see, but mm-hmm. didn't work. So the cooks were a little happy on the trigger? They
2: are a little quick on the trigger because we didn't train them right, I think. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think they had the good training that... The rest of us had so that was what happened up there.
1: You mentioned uh, two guys that you knew and obviously had great respect for who were killed in that battle and I'm just trying to imagine being in your shoes. You're a 20-year-old kid and you're dealing with guys that you trained with, guys that you knew passing away within your vision. How did you handle and and process and move on from that?
2: Well, in the case of my executive officer, he was a wonderful guy and Of course, when I joined the company, I really didn't know much about the company commander because he didn't even talk to me. John was the one that talked to me, and he was so good to me. He he was a really good guy and made me feel very comfortable being Mm. now the new weapons platoon leader. So when he was killed down on Ridge that destroyed, that did turn me off a little bit, but... I knew we were in a war, and we had to keep going, you know. When you're there, you got to do it, you know, that's all. It's very simple.
1: It's time for our final break, but there's more to come with soon-to-be 99-year-old Howard Cook including how this returning soldier and his wife Averill ended up in Life magazine. You can find more about that at hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook, and we'll be right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with Search Strategy Marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it and Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers, so look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore well join the club Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328.
0: Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere on the air and online by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com.
1: Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our visit with Howard Cook, one of the last of the first. Howard is one of the last remaining members of America's first special mountain warfare unit, the ski troopers of the 10th Mountain Division, who fought in Italy during World War II. And you said you didn't get wounded, but I'm sure there are some times where you came pretty close, starting with that bullet whizzing by your ear. Are there some other moments that you look back on and you say, boy, I was pretty fortunate to get out of that alive?
2: I was very fortunate in many cases, because most of the time at night I would take out combat patrols. And of course, one of the things that did for me is the guys that went out with me were C-company guys, and they always wanted to go with me. We'd look for Germans and we'd attack them. We did well in our combat patrols. And so when it came time for me to take over the company, because we lost a couple of officers in the company commander got wounded. I was only 20, and they made me, because there a lot of first lieutenants around and could be promoted to captain, but I never got promoted to captain. They just made me acting company commander, see? Because <laughs> the guys in the company wanted me to be the company commander because we had some you know, good experiences on our combat patrols. So they all wanted me to take over. The battalion commander knew that. That was okay with him. And if the guys wanted me, that I could become the acting company commander. But I never got to be captain. See? <laughs> I was still the acting company commander of C Company until the war was over.
1: So what you're saying is you got the responsibility without the rank and the pay raise.
2: That's right. Yeah. But... I understood what the problem is, that here's a bunch of other first lieutenants who outrank me by a long shot. What are they going to think if I get made captain? And they don't, because they know I'm just a kid, and (laughs) I don't know. And the guys in the sea company all were glad that I was made acting company commander, because they knew what to do. We did very well. The rest of the war, we did very well.
1: And— With regard to Riva Ridge, so this was the first place that you experienced combat, but it was really significant in that part of the war. In fact, I think I read it was the most successful Alpine offensive America had ever had in its history to that point. When that was over, when you realized you had secured that high ground and then you could move on and finish off Belvedere and all that was that a relief when you got to that point, or was it not that clear cut in the fog of war?
2: Well, I think we were all pretty good. And I said, I think we're going to go on. We had a uh, good feeling because we kept going. And right after that, we had to take Sassamillari, and that was on a ridge top. You know, you had to climb up ri- the ridge to the little town of S- S- Sassamalari. It wasn't quite a piece of cake. We lost a lot of guys at Sassamalari, too. You lose a lot of guys because the second platoon leader's killed right away. Oh, my Lord. A lot of the guys were killed there at Sassamalari going up that south ridge, and it's just um, very difficult. They had a lot of weapons up at the top of the hill, the, the Germans did, and so it was a most difficult battle. Mm-hmm. That's where my colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Hampton, was my battalion commander. He was a wonderful guy. We got to know each other pretty well, and he got wounded there. He got wounded there. So now we had a new Battalion commander, Colonel Green. And so everybody went on and kept going up the road north. And the Germans were quite used to us winning. We kept winning. (laughs) We did have Air Force support, you know, and doing fine.
1: Well, and mountain warfare is is different from the hedgerows that they were fighting in in France and certainly different from the jungles of the Pacific. Did you guys have some things that? those units wouldn't have had? Like, are you using mules to pack stuff up the side of mountains? I, I know in some cases the the Mountain Division had aerial trams that the engineers constructed to move troops and supplies. What can you tell me about that?
2: Well, uh, we had some beautiful mules in Colorado. These mules are absolutely beautiful. I tried giving them orders and was not particularly successful (laughs) with giving a a mule the orders. And they didn't quite understand, I guess, the orders, or I wasn't definite enough, I guess, with my commands. But then we got Italian mules, and we didn't have American mules over in Italy. They didn't bring the mules over, the good mules that we knew, you know. (laughs) And so we got these Italian mules And we tried to get them to understand us. I couldn't even speak Italian very much, but I had learned a few Italian words. We did use the Italian mules, and they helped a lot, you know, because that's what you need up
1: there. And I think I read the reason you didn't get your American mules was they sent them to the China-Burma-India Theater instead? They
2: maybe did. I don't know that. I don't know where they went, but the mules we had... In Colorado were absolutely great, you know. We had a lot of them, too. We had 5,000 mules, I think.
1: And did you ever see any of those trams in operation where they would string like a cable and have a car running on the cable to bring supplies up and down or, or evacuate the wounded?
2: We had one, and the engineers put it up in about three days up on River Ridge. They put it up, and we could supply us immediately with ammunition and everything we needed, you know, food. The engineers did a beautiful job.
1: I mean, that's something I would never think of, right? I mean, there's so many unique little examples of ingenuity, and, and you never know what makes the difference yeah. in a battle. But if you don't have bullets, you're not going to beat the Germans, right? That's
2: right. If you don't have the ammunition, I mean, please pass the ammunition, you know. <laughs> and We did. We always seemed to have the supplies we needed.
1: A couple things, just on a a personal note that I wonder about, and I hope these aren't stupid questions, but maybe the obvious one is, how scared were you? Did you really think that you were going to make it back home to Oakland and see your family again?
2: Well, I think you always have hope, and I always hoped I would not get injured too badly, but I knew I might get injured because everybody around me was getting injured. Yeah, I knew that was going to happen to, you know, those those things are going to happen to you, and you know it. But I never I never got injured. I just kept going.
1: And that was my other question. What kept you going? Because you're dealing with cold and wind and fog and mud and sleeping in the elements and, you know, getting shot at, losing your friends, all these things that most of us will never deal with and might want to make us give up. So so what kept you going day after day after day?
2: I guess my mother and father. I thought about my family and how everything was always, you know, how they did everything for us and I said I got to take care of those people. I have to take care of our fellow Americans. So that was my drive. That my drive was just to win. I wasn't going to lose. And I didn't lose. I'm very fortunate that I didn't lose, yeah. Didn't even, as I say, get wounded.
1: And it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were in pretty consistent combat from the time Reva Ridge started in mid-February until... The E day, right?
2: Well, practically. Although I did have, after we took Sesimboli, I contracted pneumonia. I had to go back to the hospital in Livorno to get well, and so I was back there for four weeks. And then I came back and joined the tents before the war was over, and got up to the Lake Garda. You know, so <laughs> it's easy
1: to get pneumonia. I would guess so, considering what you were dealing with. Have you ever pondered, I mean, I'm sure that wasn't easy being in the hospital for four weeks with pneumonia, but have you ever wondered if maybe that saved your life because it took you out of combat for four weeks? Oh,
2: I realized that I was safe in Livorno in the hospital. It didn't stop me from wanting to go back to be with C Company. I wanted to be back there with C Company. You got a group of guys, you just want
1: to be back with
2: them, and you want to help them. So I didn't ever want to leave the front line. I had to stay there.
1: And Lake Garda was the last battle for the 10th before the war ended in Europe. How much action did you see there?
2: Well, it was very interesting. 86th 1st Battalion went up to the right of Lake Garda, up a valley to a place at the northeast end of Lake Garda. Torboli was the name of the little town. We were attacking in this area. It was a valley that went up to the right of mountains that were to the right of Lake Garda. So we wound up around Torboli, and by that time the war was
1: over. And I believe the other regiments of your division had maybe a more treacherous journey there with the Tunnel of Death right along the side of the lake.
2: Tunnel of Death. There were several tunnels. On that east side of the Lake Garda, several tunnels that you had to go through. As an example, H Company, which was a heavy weapons company, was in one of the tunnels, and the German 88s were successful in firing right into the tunnel and pretty well destroying a lot of the guys from H Company, the weapons company. So that was a very serious problem, and... uh, I wasn't there. I was in the hospital still.
1: And how did you receive that news that the enemy had surrendered and this part of the war is over?
2: Actually, I found out that the war was just about over when we almost got to Torboli. That's when General Hayes called everybody together and said the war is over. And he had taken the surrender of German and Austrian forces.
1: What did that feel like to hear him say that? That was very
2: comfortable. (laughs) I I was comfortable because I wasn't wounded, and I didn't have pneumonia anymore, and I was all right. I was very fortunate, huh?
1: Very blessed, very blessed. Did you have any opportunities to interact with Italian civilians and maybe get a sense for what it meant to them?
2: Well, the Italians, of course, were part of the Axis originally, but Italians are family people, you know. They are nice people, generally. And, of course, I was raised in an Italian-American neighborhood, and my greatest friend was Dino. And Dino was five years old, and I was five years old. So that's the first guy I really met that I knew. I went up to Dino's house, and we went in the backyard, and he showed me the tomatoes that his dad was growing, or the family was growing, and we got to eating tomatoes. And then he says, come here in the basement. He says, this barrel over here is got filled with red wine. And my dad makes red wine. And he got a couple of glasses, and we drank red wine. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we decided, boy, I'd like to go to sleep. And we wound up sleeping under the barrel. <laughs> And so guess who comes home but Dante? And he's looking at two kids lying on his barrel of wine, and he breaks into a big laugh. He's laughing like crazy about these two kids just sleeping uh, under the wine barrel. (laughs) 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 And, of course, from then on, of course, Dante says mi knew my name was Howard, and then he, he started calling me Howard. And, and he, he, was, he always liked the fact that Dino and I were friends. And from then on, we started playing baseball a lot, Dino and I. Anyway, I was still friend of Dino's. And
1: what was it like to come home from World War II, to come back to the States again?
2: Well, it was very interesting. I had had a little girlfriend, you remember when I dated to Pearl Harbor, you know, the day. But then I came back and I knew I had to go back to Cal because I had my first freshman year. I played on the baseball team, and Harry Kingman was a former Yankee, and he was the coach of the baseball team, and I was a third baseman. Then the fall, football. And I had never played football in high school, and I didn't know much about it except I thought, oh, I could learn. So Clint Evans was the coach of the freshman football team, and Clint Evans was the baseball coach, too. At that particular point, I went up to Uncle Rudy's house, and a lady walked in there a young lady, about the age of my cousins. We met there in Moody's house. She kind of looked me over a little bit. After she went back home, she called up and told the girls, I have the folks' car tonight, and we can go to the show. You want to go to the show? She asked the girls, is that guy still there? And so we all went to the show. They wanted to take me to the show, too. So we sat together, this girl and I. Abel Edna Forster, so we decided to date together for a little while, and we both went to the University of California. We wound up having lovely times together, so we wound up getting married, and we lived for 73 and a half years together and had a beautiful marriage, and she's still with me in the house here. We had to cremate her, but we wanted to be buried together, and so We'll be married
1: together. I'm sure there's a few people listening who say, boy, 73 and a half years. I'd like to be married for that long. Do you have any advice for him? Was there a secret to the longevity of your marriage?
2: Love. I think love is to, if you know a person and you love a person, you can live with them for more than 73 and a half years. See, <laughs> I would like to have it run a little longer, but she had Alzheimer's disease, it's a fatal disease, and it's a pernicious disease. It takes everything away from you. Everything you ever remembered to do, you lose it, you see. So she went through all that. A lovely girl. She's still a lovely girl, but lost her February 22nd of 2021 at 6.30 a.m. in a hospice up in Duarte. It was difficult for me to lose my wife but we have things happen and this blessing came from god too Mm -hmm. she came and she was working and my wife was quite ill with his alzheimer's and she took care of her and she said we were talking about the number of people we were hiring to take care of her she says I liked that little one. I liked the little one. Mm-hmm. And so, the little one kept with her until she died, and then she stayed here, and she's still with us. And so it's kind of nice to have somebody. She's a very wonderful lady, mm-hmm.
1: I'm very blessed. Howard's talking about his friend Susanna, who did such a wonderful job caring for his late wife Averill, and she's continued to help Howard and, in fact, was instrumental in his getting baptized at the age of 94. I've got a few more questions just to try to fill in some blanks here. So you played baseball your freshman year before the war?
2: Baseball, third base. I, I, then I joined the football team, and I didn't know anything about it, and I became a right guard. And uh, one of the all-American tackles that was on the football team was the coach for the freshman team, and we went to USC and we paid the freshman USC, and we routed them six to nothing, <laughs> cause our f- our after-point kicker wasn't that good. He couldn't make the seventh point. See, that was my history with football. And, of course, when I came back from the war, I didn't go on the football team because I wasn't that big, and I wanted to go through my studies as fast as I could, which I did. I, I just kept going to school winter and summer all the time. I had to study as much as I could to get through, and I did get through, and I got my degree in 48, so that was pretty good. Came back toward the end of 45, and it all worked out fine, and I just kept going.
1: I just have a couple more questions for you. Thank you for being so generous with your time, and, and I don't want to forget to say thank you for serving our country and thank you for telling us a story that no one else could tell us. I am curious, have you ever been back to Italy in those areas where you fought?
2: Yes. The Tenth Mountain arranged us to go back every three years. We could go back every three years, and I didn't go back on the first trip, I don't think. I went back as soon as I could, when I could afford it. We went back and had a good time, and then I finally took both my son and his wife and my daughter and her husband over to Italy on a trip that the... Tenth Mountain ran. They just enjoyed the daylights out of it. And by that time, they had a daughter. She met a fellow who's a fine young man and a fine guy. And they live in Texas now. And they're very happy together. And we've been down to Wiberly to see our new great-grandson. And he's some kind of a tremendous animal. (laughs) (laughs) and she's going to deliver another one in January. So we don't know when he's going to arrive, but if it's like the first one she's had, it's going to be fun because he's doing everything that you can't believe how much that guy's doing. And, And, of course, my daughter, Casey, is the grandmother now, and she thinks that he's very intelligent.
1: I've got to ask you, since you went back to Italy and you saw what it looks like now, when you look at Riva Ridge, is there part of you that says, I don't know how we climbed up there and took that territory?
2: Uh, no, it, no, it was uh, relatively easy because I was in such good shape and the guys with me were in such good shape. Uh-huh. We took that mountain like, like it needed to be taken, and we took it. And it was... Uh, a great experience because that, again, that made it very easier for the 85th regiments and 87th regiments to attack Belvedere and Gargalesco and the other mountain up
1: there. And I also wonder, have you been to the National World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C.?
2: Yes, I was on the honor flight to Washington, D.C., and that was quite a wonderful experience and there's Casey right there in the picture she became my guardian on the trip to Washington and it was a wonderful trip and all the guys that were on the trip were great guys we just had a really good time so since that time we've returned and Joe Bush who is now 102 I think and his son are probably going to have another party, and I better have a party when I'm 102. So I'm going to invite Bo- Joe Bush and his son to my party.
1: When you were at the World War II memorial and you saw you know the Pacific and the Atlantic and every state and then that wall of gold stars representing 400,000 guys like you who didn't get to come home and get married and have a family the way you have, what did you think about when you were looking at those gold stars?
2: You have to remember, every one of those guys who didn't get to come back gave their life for us. Most of them were fine, young, usually pretty young guys like me, and they deserved to come back, but they never got back and So it hurts you a little bit to know, or hurts you a lot maybe, to know that they had to have come back and have families and enjoy life like i have it is it is it's a, just very very wrong isn't it war is bad and i i did fight in the war and i think we fought successfully we did good but it's it's not good and i felt for all the germans too you know because my dad was German, see, and my mother was Scottish. It's a uh, very difficult, war is a very difficult situation, and I hope we don't have too many more of them. And I was called back in the Korean War, and I did all that. Oh, That was it. very interesting because I had finished my university education, and I was a graduate of the School of Business and Accounting. And so when I went to Tokyo to get in the war, they said, no, you're going to stay here in Japan, because we have some serious problems here in Japan, and that the Treasury is overcome with the cost of the occupation of Japan. So they put me in charge of trying to reduce the cost of occupation of Japan, so I did that, and uh, here's my picture that appeared in uh, Life magazine. This is me, and this is Mrs. Cook. She was a really nice girl, and we reached and touched our hands. And this is the ship I came back from Nagasaki on.
1: I'm going to put a picture of this at hometownheroesradio.com. So this is Life magazine, and the picture is from 1952 with you coming home. On Valentine's Day from the Korean War, how about that? Beautiful.
2: And yeah, look at all these wonderful guys that went into the Korean War, and they're looking out and seeing that we're we're getting together. And she's down on the wharf, see. And she was the one that was really in trouble because the wharf. The ship was banging into the wharf. And anyway, these guys are holding on to my ankles.
1: I was going to say, because you're at a downward angle out of that little hole in the side of the ship. I was hoping someone was holding on to you.
2: They said, is that your wife down there? And I says, yeah. She says, get out of the porthole. We'll hold your ankles. They let me reach down and grab a hold of her fingers. And then when we got down to the dock... It was better
1: I could hold her in my arms.
2: <laughs> we had a good time.
1: I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything I didn't ask you about, feel free to add. But I'm just wondering, as you get ready for your 99th birthday here in just a matter of weeks, when you think back over all those years and all the things that you've done and experienced, is there something that you would say you're most proud of or most thankful for?
2: You know, when that bullet passed my ear, you know, that's It practically hit my ear, you know. (laughs) So I just knew that we were in a war. I was threatened, wasn't I? They didn't want me to live. The Germans didn't want me to live. You know, I don't like to kill people either, but you had to kill them. It's uh, just that way. So we hope we never have those situations where we must do that. I would hope not. I'm just most thankful for a wonderful life in the United States of America and a fine career in business, and I've had a lovely life.
1: Howard Cook, soon to be 99, and we actually have a few more of his memories that wouldn't quite fit into our radio time today. You can find them in the extended podcast version of this episode online. And while you're there at hometownheroesradio.com, you can link to a superb documentary film about the 10th Mountain Division called Climb to Glory. Howard is one of the veterans featured. I want to say a special thank you to Val Rios for connecting me to Howard. Val's late father, Cruz Rios, was the first 10th Mountain Division veteran I ever had the privilege of interviewing almost 20 years ago now, and Val has done a tremendous job of keeping the legacy of the 10th Mountain Division alive. Thanks so much for listening to Hometown Heroes today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life,
0: visit HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at ProvidentPayments.com.